This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Sins of the Father, Inherited Curses, Crimes and Responsibilities in Speculative Fiction. Ah, the sins of the father. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's one of those tropes that if you say sins of the father, people will go, what? And then you'd explain it and everyone's like, oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It is, it's one of those really underrated ones. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. And yet it's one of the ones which appears in so much fiction. And I know that on a personal level, I'm drawing on this for one of my projects um in fact yeah i mean it could be argued that the kestrel really has the sins of the father in it as well um for a different reason but we'll obviously kind of get into the details a little bit more but it's definitely one of these yeah underrated tropes that everybody actually secretly loves they just don't realize they love it yeah definitely so before we get into the actual trope itself let's look at (laughs) where exactly the phrase has come from because i think people assume sins of the i mean the whole sort of the sins of the father will be visited upon the sons etc doesn't actually exist as a complete quote in the bible and everyone assumes that's where it's come from yeah it it sort of exists but not in that form so just a brief little linguistic history lesson if you like because i can't ever pass one of those up (laughs) so biblical origins exodus Uh, Chapter 20, verse 5. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of they that hate me. So, you know, God is love, everybody. (laughs) I I, I do love it because he literally is like, for I am a jealous God. And I'm like, okay, that's a... (laughs) Way to own your problems. Way to own... worship me and only me and if you don't i will punish you your children your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren <laughs> um the other i mean there's about seven or eight mentions in the bible but the other main one is ezekiel chapter 18 verse 30 therefore i shall judge you o house of israel everyone according to his ways so you know god has had some character development by this point in the bible yeah he's grown like, maybe maybe this is you know maybe it's a bit unfair to punish someone's great-grandchildren for something they don't even know that their great-great-grandfathers did so yeah we'll go from there um there's also roots of it in greek and roman tragedy and history so uh, euripides who was writing between 485 and 406 bce uh, this is from Phrixus, fragment 970. The gods visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. So people assume it comes from the Bible, and it kind of does, but that's actually closer to the phrase as we know it. Mm-hmm. And then Horace, who is a historian, I believe, um, from the Odes 3, for the sins of your fathers, you, though guiltless, must suffer, which I find somehow worse than the biblical verses. Yeah. It's kind of like, we're acknowledging you've done nothing wrong, but here you go anyway, suffering, enjoy. (laughs) And then, of course, like any good theme, Shakespeare picked it up. Yes. And he picked it up in one of my favourite plays, The Merchant of Venice. This is Act 3, Scene 5. The sins of the fathers are to be laid on the children. So it's clearly a trope with 
a lot of weight behind it, a lot of history behind it. It's something that people have kind of um, internalised, I think. And in some ways it makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you think about the idea of you you hit a string of really, really bad luck mm. and you feel like the universe is punishing you, but what for? What have you possibly done wrong? Well, if you cannot find anything that you've done wrong, then maybe you're suffering for something that your ancestors did. It makes a weird, twisted sort of sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's also interesting because, and, you know, we're going to go into this in a little bit more detail, but the idea of the sort of the sins of the father and punishment and things like that um, being inherited, um, it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just end on the level of, well, bad things are happening to me, one of my ancestors must have offended the gods. It's, there's also a kind of a deeper social implication. There's also the, the idea that you can inherit trauma, that you can inherit, um, you know, if someone, if your father does something bad um, and he's not around to take the blame, you, you know, people will turn their ire on you and things like that. It, so it can be a distant thing. It can be a, my ancestors did something and I don't know what. Or it can be a I know what my father or my mother, it doesn't it doesn't have to be gendered in the least. I know what my my parents did. I might have I've might have seen it, I might have ardently disagreed with them, but I have to bear their sins um as well because I, they they are related to me so i think that's what really makes this trope so interesting yeah definitely so let's look at what it means in narrative terms yeah. the basic concept is that guilt or culpability and i think culpability is in some ways a better word mm -hmm. is inherited as madeline's just said this and it you know it can manifest in several ways which obviously we'll go into more detail about later mm -hmm. Um, as we've also already said, it's a really popular trope, partly because it draws on themes such as righteous fury and partly because we as humans are reason makers. So as I've just said, it makes sense for us to be punished for something that at least someone we're connected to did. Yeah. It doesn't make sense for us to live in an unjust universe where, you know, bad shit happens to good people just because. Yeah. Um, so on a narrative level, we all find that very satisfying sort of like oh all this stuff is happening um for example someone always tries to kill me on my birthday <laughs> <laughs> um, mentioning no names J jules is um, making a reference she's not making a confession mara <laughs> no no not me personally i mean i'm surprised they haven't but you know no <laughs> um, yeah so and it, it's a case of the character doesn't deserve to suffer um because they haven't actually done anything yeah. But at least they're suffering for a reason. Yeah. Um, inherited guilt, inherited culpability. And we, we as consumers of story actually find that, as I've said, really satisfying. Yeah, it, it's... And we'll, we'll go into why it's satisfying, but I think one of the reasons it's also satisfying um, for me, very personally, is that it provides often... It provides a chance for your character to be going through something awful for the people who were doing it to your character to kind of have a reason for doing it um, and for your character to still be blameless so you can have mega ultra cool character who's never done a wrong thing in their life but is suffering the consequences of doing a wrong thing because they happen to be related to someone who was utterly evil uh, so it makes for great heroics 
Yeah, it's absolutely an eat-your-cake-and-have-it situation. Yeah. And the level of nuance you can bring to that sort of conflict is also very enticing for a writer. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's look at it in a little bit more detail and how it's used in um, science fiction and speculative fiction and things like that. So... Um, Sins of the Father, let's start with the revenge arc. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> this uh, It's probably one of the most simple interpretations of the Sins of the Father trope, and we've obviously done an episode on revenge arcs. This is a very specific type of revenge arc. Um, readers tend to find revenge arcs cathartic because it's satisfying to see wrongdoers punished. Yes. But this type of revenge arc is what happens when someone will not deal with their own emotional wounds. So, you know, their own anger, their own pain, what have you, um, this is this is what sets them on the path. And it's the idea that in somehow somehow um, taking out the person who harmed them through perhaps killing a parent or whatever mm-hmm. will bring them peace and closure, which, you know, as we know from looking at revenge arcs, is, is rarely ever the case. Yeah. Um, so let's say, but but in the sins of the father case, it's not the person who actually does the thing that's bad that gets punished. No. <laughs> that's the thing that gets twisted. So let's say the first character is wronged by the second character's father, ancestor. Mm-hmm. Um, that character obviously has righteous rage, which, you know, is something we can be on board with. We're, we're on board with a character who wants to punish someone who's harmed them. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But big twist, the set the character who actually what, who wronged them is no longer in the picture. They're dead. Yeah. Perhaps, or you know they're they're so completely out of reach. There is no chance of revenge on that specific character. Yeah. So our our protagonist, our wronged protagonist, will settle for enacting revenge upon the second character's children, perhaps, or their descendants, yeah. or their friends. <laughs> yes. They'll, they'll literally just use a proxy because they've got all of this sort of bundled righteous anger which is kind of sort of bubbling away in them like a, an explosion waiting to happen and they have basically decided to concentrate that on revenge on, you know, the, it's a righteous anger they feel um, and there's now no outlet for it so they need to find another outlet for it or there's so much overflow that even if the other, the the original outlet is in the picture so let's say um ah the the demon king killed my family um i'm going to destroy the demon king oh but i happen to have met one of the demon king's children as well um i have so much hatred um that i will destroy everything which is to do with the demon king simply by proxy of it being so it might also just be current availability as well so the person doesn't need to be completely out of the picture for it to still to still work no absolutely and it's a really interesting look of, of a particular revenge arc because we start with our sympathies being with the wronged main character yeah and then gradually unless they remove themselves from the trajectory they're on our sympathies will start to wane because at a certain point they go beyond what we as readers and viewers actually consider a reasonable force yeah um so while we're most of us on board with the idea that 
yes, those who wrong us deserve to suffer, and there's even something satisfying about having a personal hand in delivering that suffering. Yeah. Um, that that's a, there, there is a sense of of misaligned justice there. Put it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at a certain at a certain point, as Madeline has said, finding proxies becomes very problematic. Um, I've also seen this done quite a lot, uh, where the where the where the wronged MC is kind of happy to settle for a proxy who isn't even remotely connected yeah. to the person who wronged them. They go for someone who reminds them of it. Yeah. And while this, I, I, I'll go into more detail on that later, but basically that can work, but it can also be a sign of someone who is, is now, this is now the beginning of them becoming a villain. This is, this is their origin story of becoming a villain. Yeah. It's a, it's a very typical bully thing to do as well, is if you have been wronged in some way to then exert control over someone whom you do have control over. Um, so, you know, Draco Malfoy, I'm going to use Draco Malfoy as an example. Um, Draco Malfoy has an abusive home life. Like, I I thoroughly do believe that his father and his mother love him, and I think his mother in particular love him, but I also think that their home situation is not healthy in any form. Um, and I think that sort of the, the way that things have been brought up as well is not healthy. And in particular, sort of when Draco Malfoy falls into sort of the power of Lord Voldemort and is living in fear and stuff like that, you know, he takes a lot of his anger out on other people. Um, they're not the ones who are hurting him. They're not the ones that he wants to kind of to actually stop and to push back against. But he cannot, he doesn't have the strength physically or emotionally to push back against the main bully. He's too afraid of them. So he takes revenge by victimising other people. Yeah. Um, another example that works for me is um, Frank Castle. So Frank Castle, the Punisher, mm -hmm. loses his family. Um, his family basically get fridged at the beginning of his arc. Yep. And then the rest of his arc is just following him going around, basically playing judge, jury and executioner. Yeah. And often from a great distance because he's an extremely skilled sniper as well as getting up and close in a, in a fist fight. But generally, if he decides someone's going to die, that's it. He takes them out of the equation. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they are absolutely proxies for the sort of people who resulted in the death of his family. Yeah, absolutely. Um, weirdly enough as well, the <laughs> when he's doing it, he's punishing himself as well. <laughs> He is. There's a weird sort of penance to it, and it's it's very twisted. So it's a really compelling, nuanced thing to look at. But it's also he can tell himself that at least he's taking out people who are worse than him. At least he's taking out the bad guys, which I think is a very dangerous game to play when you start killing people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I'll, I'll mention a an example that Madeline probably won't like as much because I know how she feels about Wuthering Heights, but. <laughs> I think this is actually one of the most horrific examples because this isn't someone who is just seeking proxies. This is someone who engineers a situation that almost exactly mirrors the one in which he was wronged. Yeah. So if you look at Heathcliff, um, those who don't know Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff doesn't marry Cathy, his childhood love. 
Uh, she goes, she chooses someone else. So she wrongs him very much as much as her brother did. Her brother victimised Heathcliff and had him beaten and all sorts of things. So it was very abusive. Heathcliff goes off, makes himself, comes back a very wealthy man and gradually gains control of all the houses and property and everything in the area. And he not only gains control of that, he engineers a situation in which there are children of the Linton household and his you know, some of his own children and his children of, of Cathy and his rival Edgar mm-hmm. and children of the man who so wronged him in the first place, children of, of uh, I want to say Hindley, Hindley, so Hareton as well. Yeah. And he puts them all together and recreates that, that toxic love triangle <laughs> that was there in the first place in order to then crush them. And the only reason he stays his hand is not because he thinks better of it. It's because he loses heart. He's kind of like, I've, I've been doing my revenge thing for like 20, 25 years now and I'm, I've kind of lost the taste for it. Yeah, I'm a, bit, like, I'm I'm a could, bit tired. <laughs> I could crush them all now, but uh, that's not really what I want. What I really want is just to be with Cathy. So basically what he really wants at that point is death. <laughs> yeah. But if you think about the sort of sociopathic scheming that would have gone into creating that situation, all the little steps you'd have to do in between, that is really disturbing. It is. It's very, very disturbing. And it's, it's again, it's interesting because you start off with Heathcliff and you feel him. You feel his situation. He's this child who, who's sort of brought in, told you're an equal, then treated absolutely not like an equal, abused, fell in love with someone who he felt very strongly loved him back only to then basically be dumped in a, in a way that was very horrific for him because he happened to overhear what Kathy was saying you yeah. know um but not the whole of it um and you know so you feel for him you feel for a situation you and and his love his his undying love redeems him a little bit but then of course um <laughs> it all goes wrong um because he just becomes steadily more and more, um, you know, uh, obsessive. And it's quite interesting because he is enacting the sins of the father. Um, and in the same way, his children, you know, he, he's he's inheriting all the trauma that, or rather he's taking the trauma that he sort of received. And now all of his children are going through, are inheriting <laughs> the trauma <laughs> that yeah. he went through as well. So we've got two levels yeah. of sins of the father happening here. <laughs> yeah, it, it's definitely... The, the more you think about it, the more twisted it looks. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, um, the only point I was going to make on top of this is these are obviously extreme examples. Frank Castle, Heathcliff, Draco Malfoy to a certain point. Yeah. Um, but we ought to a greater or lesser extent at some point dabble with this in our own lives. Yeah. And it might be an unconscious thing. So someone wrongs us. And if we... We may have a desire to then seek revenge against that person, which is is understandable. Mm. But sometimes we misdirect that feeling of um, misanthropy or even malice against somebody who just reminds us of that person. So say you had a difficult relationship with one parent um, for very specific reasons and then you see other people who were like that parent in some of their attitudes, Yeah, you find yourself getting into arguments and fights with them and acting towards them in a way that you would not act towards other people. 
yeah absolutely you, you go on the attack then what you have done is you've created a sins of the father situation and you are using them as a proxy yeah you're... and i think the thing is people do it and they don't necessarily realize that they're projecting yeah absolutely um, and I, I think everyone it's happened to everyone in some form or another um projecting is it's sort of inevitable and you might be as we've said completely unconscious of it you know, you might not have even realised that that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does happen. It's it's part of the reason where why I get frustrated when you have a character in a book who goes on and does something and then they'll do bad things and then they'll say, yes, but have you seen my childhood? And it's like, well, you're an adult now. And the whole point of becoming an adult is doing the heroic thing, which is accepting the things that happen to you and then making better choices and some people in real life genuinely don't seem to be able to do that, but they don't get a, a get-out-of-jail-free card for the things that they then go and enact on other people because of this. Yeah. That, so It's, um, it's the uh, it's the Brooklyn Nine-Nine <laughs> thing, which is cool motive, still murder. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think when you find yourself having a knee-jerk reaction to, to people... Um, then you need to ask yourself why you're having that knee-jerk reaction. Is it, you know, you're genuinely learnt, you've learned from experience that this attitude in a person is potentially dangerous and you've got to be careful? Mm-hmm. Or is it that there's nothing wrong with that person other than the fact that they remind you of someone who did you wrong? Yeah, absolutely. I think... <laughs> it's 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 one of those don't judge a book by its cover kind of thing, but it it, it is this whole sort of well, I was bullied by someone who looked like who looks like you, and therefore I've decided that you must be them now, and it's 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 dangerous, but it does it happens to everybody, I think, on some level. Being conscious yeah, of it that... makes a big difference, though. Yes. As we've said, part of the whole growing up and becoming a fully formed person is realising that you are doing this shit and then stopping doing it. Or doing your best to do so anyway. Okay, so other parts of this trope. Family curses. Who doesn't love a family Uh, curse? Seriously. Well, not not literally on themselves, (laughs) presumably. In fiction, who doesn't love a family curse? I collect them, Jules. (laughs) My family's really starting to get annoyed with me. So this is the satisfaction of having a likeable character and watching them suffer. And, you know, we say as readers and viewers, oh, I don't want anything bad to happen to them. But you do secretly, otherwise you wouldn't keep watching or reading. (laughs) You wouldn't be interested if it was just, oh, it was another lovely sunny day and they went and got coffee and walked their dog. You probably wouldn't, okay? (laughs) Not if it was all the time, no. Um, and also it feeds into that thing where it's not merely random bad luck or something bad happens to a person. This is something they've inherited, a family curse. So you've got the mystery element as well. Yeah. It's it's quite interesting, the whole the whole family curse thing, because you can have two levels of, of the family curse. You can have an actual family curse, or you can have like a, a mental family curse. Which I, I kind of like. I like the way that they're both used. So you can have a literal, a witch cursed my family. And now we are all, all um, I have a, we have a hereditary disease in our family and we refer to it as the family curse or something like that. You know, you get the Targaryen, the Targaryen curse in Game of Thrones is that they were all so 
in into bread that half of them went crazy and that was the Targaryen curse as it were uh, so it can yeah and the other half tended to be brilliant yeah. so it was a weird sort of 50 50 when the when a Targaryen is born born the gods flip a coin yeah. thing so it's um yeah it's it's interesting because so you've got you can have it as a literal curse you can have it as a a sort of a a, some, a physical or a mental thing which is referred to as a curse or, and this is the bit that interests me you can have it as a behaviour which is like ah, oh, this is the family curse the men, the men in this family are never able to sum up the courage or we always miss out on, on the, these opportunities this is just, of our, just our curse and Weirdly enough, I I have a strange appreciation for when that's used in fiction and when when it's referred to as a curse. Because on the one side, you're like, well, that's just lazy. Um, this family are like, oh, well, we, we referred to it as a family curse. And I was like, well, no, nothing's forcing you to do this. It's just a sort of a behavior that you've kind of inherited. But then I like it as well because it talks about inherited behavior. Um, and it yeah. is, it, it's a curse. It's a curse of we we are inevitably going to be affected by how we were raised and who we were raised by um which means that you know there is there's a there's a level of inevitability as long as you are unconscious of it and you don't actively try and sort of push against it um but it is it's going to be sort of ingrained in you from a young age um and that's a really interesting versions of the sins of the father for me, because when you think of the sins of the father, you do tend to think of it. We go to the extremes, don't we? We go to the, well, your father murdered my family, therefore I will. Or uh, this person was cruel to me, therefore, etc. But yeah, yeah it's, definitely. it's the idea as well, which is the sins of the father is like, well, your father's an under like the men in these families an underachiever. It's the curse. Um, and it's like, yeah, you have inherited the sins of your father. Your father was an underachiever and you have been raised now in a world which basically both punishes you for that, but also has made it inevitable for you not to follow into that role. Um, but also it doesn't need to be very, very negative things like that. We we also talk about the inherit, you know, inheriting trauma, inheriting... Um, desires, you know, someone who was abused might then abuse their children and, you know, that's that's the sins of the father because actually it's nothing to do with with the child who's now being hurt they're not the ones who did it they've inherited the sins of the father who but not even their own father <laughs> the sins of their grandfather essentially um, uh, and again it, it, I say abuse but it, it can go down to a really minute level. It can just be behavioural things. And that's where this sort of this trope starts to get very, very intricate. So I like the whole family curse thing because I think it, it, it works very well in tandem. Yeah, definitely. And it's um, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, it can be... When we're talking about inherited behaviours, this is a very slight tangent and then we'll get back onto an actual sort of magic curse. Mm -hmm. um, but... It can be something as simple as, let's say, um, let's say your grandparents grew up impoverished in Ireland and there was never quite enough to eat. So when they finally moved to the UK um, and they did manage to provide enough food for their children, 
everybody was encouraged to clean their plates every single time because you never knew when the next meal was coming from. And then those people grew up and had children. And again, it, it, it was seen as a level of care to provide food and perhaps too much food without looking at the nutritional value. So it can be as simple as an inherited behaviour of um, how much do we really need? Because it's inherited trauma from a time when people did not have enough to eat. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. This is why it's really important for every everyone to always question where certain behaviours and things have come from and whether maybe they need them or whether maybe it's time to get rid of them and put in better behaviours because you can always reprogram yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So, magic type curses, simple premise, a character discovers that a major obstacle to their happiness is an inherited curse placed on their bloodline because one of their ancestors really screwed up or pissed off the wrong person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when I was putting together this structure, I was like, this is such a great trope, why haven't I used it? I could have used this in like dozens of ways and then I was sat there and going, what about Kieran? It's like, you absolute moron. <laughs> Kieran has got a literal bloodline curse. <laughs> Hold on a second, Jules. <laughs> Wait you have a used this. <laughs> I mean, in some respects, there's, I mean, you could almost argue in some respects, Emmeline also kind of has, a, I guess, would you call it a family curse? Her abilities and stuff like that, that comes down the family as well, which has sort of put her into positions. But Kieran certainly... Uh, literally has there's a wrong there's a wrong done there in the past of his family line and that has meant that he's haunted by certain figures that I'm not going to spoil too much. Yeah, well, I mean, it's been available for a while. So. Yeah. Okay. All <laughs> but, right. Fine. But the, yeah, but basically one of Kieran's answer. If Kieran comes from a long line of um, O'Connors, and uh, the O'Connors at one point were kings of certain parts of Ireland. And yeah. one of those early, early sons of the house of the Conqueror were um, uh, married uh, a Shea woman, as you do, as you do if you're an Irish king. <laughs> Things went really badly. They went sideways. And uh, her sisters, um, to revenge themselves upon this particular man who gave way to his jealousy, um, placed a curse on the entire bloodline and it's one of those things that it activates under very specific circumstances. Very, very specific. And of course it activates for Kieran through what can only be described as literally no fault of his own. <laughs> yeah, it really wasn't any fault of his own. Um, so I did this whole thing without even really thinking about the sins of the father trope and I found it worked really well uh, in hindsight as well I love hindsight hindsight's great I could say oh yes I planned this I planned it to be this neatly put together but the reality <laughs> is no it just felt right at the time yeah I plan more now but it meant that he had to go back and confront his own father for example yeah so um yeah that's one where it kind of okay yes I'm blowing my own trumpet but I find that that one worked for me and obviously it worked for me because I wrote it that way yeah no, absolutely. It is. It's a really, really interesting one because you've used it in a very particular way, as said, to both have a literal. This is someone. Someone has done this, which is who is related to me, but is so far back. I don't know them. I've never met them. I am not, you know, accountable for their crimes. Except you sort of are in this. Um, but 
because of that, he also then has to confront his own his own trauma as well, because he has to confront what happened to him and his father. Um, and that's I think that that works very very well because again you've got that several levels there because you also it basically talks about inherited behavior that the that the men in this family are specifically abusive and he he sees that as, as a cuz he's terrified of that he's yeah, so he's... terrified of it he's kind of run away from intimacy for most of his life yeah he's absolutely terrified that he might end up like his father yeah and it's only by confronting his father and confronting that side of himself and realizing that no he would never take it to that level yeah yeah no, it's it's a it's a very it's a very very well done one. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go too much into Kestrel, but there is you know there's storylines within Kestrel as well, which basically involve this Kestrel because of by right of just who she was born to be, has inherited sort of a curse. She she sees it as a curse, um, simply because people are attacking her because they think she's someone else. Yeah. Just because of the way that she is. Um, and now just attacking her because they can. Um, and that's just meant that pretty much every year on her birthday, um, Providence has tried to murder her in some form or another in the most bizarre ways, like pianos falling from the sky, etc. <laughs> As they do. As they do. <laughs> I I have kind of revisited this trope a little bit in Harker and Blackthorn. It's in a future book, so you won't have read it yet, Madeline. Ooh. Everyone else won't have read it at all because they're not out yet. Um, but it, it's to do with Steve and his family. <gasps> oh yes. Which, um, I think you. I think you'll enjoy it. Put it that way. I am I, so excited. <laughs> there's, there's, for everything you've read so far, there's little hints about things that might pertain to Steve and this thing. So it's okay. going to be fun. But basically, the reason why the family curse is for me, a really satisfying twist on Sins of the Father is because usually to break or lift the curse, the main character has to discover something broken within themselves and find a way of fixing it. Yeah. So you might have a very real fantasy, supernaturally type quest going on um, and the internal conflict mirrors and supports the external conflict and that's always going to be a satisfying narrative arc for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh because yeah, it, it touches on that that very real aspect. Of, but I mean, that's how fantasy often works: is that it's a it's a giant metaphor. <laughs> Words of wisdom from <laughs> from one of the dragons. <laughs> it's a metaphor. Okay, all right. So moving on from family curses and very neatly into um, shouldering responsibility. Yes. Um, th this is why I was making, I'm, I don't necessarily nitpick words just for the sake of being pedantic, believe it or not. So when I'm saying I think culpability is better than guilt, um, yeah. I, I mean very specifically that guilt doesn't really cover what this, this trope actually explores. So yeah. yes, guilt is a small part of it. It's the initial thing. It's the I feel bad about this. And guilt is useful in that respect because if you feel bad about something you've done or something your ancestors have done, then it, it discourages you from then going on and doing that bad thing again. 
Yeah. But it doesn't solve anything. And after that point, guilt then becomes a selfish and rather useless emotion because you haven't directed it to anything. Whereas culpability is when you actually accept what portion of the responsibility of, if any, is yours and you direct yourself towards solving the problem. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think it's really, really important to recognise that, not just on a, on terms, in terms of using it for your writing, but because of the world around us. Right now, there is no country, there is no people in the world who have not committed some kind of horrific act in the past. Yeah. Okay, we have different levels. We have slavery but we have murder we have genocide you know on every level from every community there will have been some kind of atrocity committed it might have been atrocities for within that community itself against certain minorities it might have been atrocities against other people the point is that we can all at some point look back and go our people did this our people have done that or our people are still doing that in some places yeah. And the the guilt and culpability thing becomes incredibly important because guilt is I'm I feel so guilty that we've done that. But guilt doesn't actually make you do anything. Or guilt will often make you take the easy road out. Um so when you see it in fiction a lot where it's like, well, that person's done that, so I'm just going to I'm just going to allow people to be angry at me. I'm just going to allow myself to be a punching bag. That doesn't actually resolve anything. It's a short-term thing, and it's actually, as Jules said, it's actually about satisfying yourself. You feel guilt, and so you want to do something which is going to make you feel better. Ultimately, it's it's a fairly useless emotion. But culpability instead is interesting because it basically says, I see what's happened. I recognise my own or i mean you might i might very well say okay well in the past x people did this uh, my ancestors did this i have never done that i'm thoroughly against that but i can recognize that they have built a system which has which benefits me so culpability is accepting that the system that i currently exist in benefits me and it was built on something which took advantage of of other people that's yeah. culpability. I can then take steps and say, okay, well, let's even this out. That's culpability. It's a useful, it's a harder emotion, though. And it goes hand in hand with guilt uh, on a small level. There's always going to be a little kernel of guilt at the centre of that. And a little bit of guilt isn't too bad, but it's, yeah, it's the separation. So you're absolutely right to be picking words, I think, Jules. Do you know, I think that's the first time anyone's ever said that to me in my life and just hasn't called me pedantic. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, absolutely. So I think the trouble is, if we're going to talk real life for a brief moment, um, the, the, the problem is we have lots of people all feeling their feelings, which is fine, but they're feeling their feelings and they're not doing anything about it. And by doing something about it, I don't mean grovelly apologies on the internet because that solves nothing. And I don't mean virtue signalling and saying, I support this group. Great, you support this group. You're vocal about it on social media. What are you actually doing? Because I'm more interested in what you're doing off screen. Okay, yeah. not signalling that you are for something or with something. In fact, if you were quiet and actually went off and, you know, found out, educated yourself more on certain aspects, 
and found out what the genuine historical connections are between things. That would be doing a hell of a lot more than just saying, oh no, I rally to this cry, without really actually understanding everything. I mean, that there's so much with the, with social media and people sort of like, oh, I'm for this, I'm for that, I'm against this person, this person's cancelled, that what you're actually doing is creating more divide, division, I think. It, it's getting to the point where we've hit tipping point and we're creating more divisiveness than togetherness. And it's going to be a real problem in the next five or ten years. I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's all basically about moderation, stuff like that. I mean, certainly I think that when people are vocal about a support of something, it can create a tidal wave. So there are some, you know, there are some good sides of that. It can raise awareness on things, particularly if celebrities or people who have large followers, you know, they say, check this out, that that spreads information. So that's good. But as you say, um, Jules, uh, it doesn't necessarily, you know, you can you can say, well, I, I feel guilty. I feel guilty because of the actions of, of uh, the British against... Um, those we colonized. I feel guilty about that. I feel guilty, and I I can say right. That, okay, so but that's not that's not going to be helpful. I've I myself never went out and colonized a place. I was ne- never <laughs> part of that movement. Um, I ha- was I wasn't even alive when that was all happening. Okay, I am not guilty of doing those things. But I am culpable for the society which has been built, which has benefited from those things. Um, so what can I do to change that? Well, I can say, right, well, let's, you know, I can I can recognise the, the history of it, talk about the history of it, not glorify the history of it. But the biggest thing I can probably do is vote. Vote. Yeah. Tr- try to make change. Be conscious of what's happening. Listen, um, you know. If there's a crisis, I mean, there's the crisis in India at the moment, uh, the COVID crisis, send some money over if you can. If you can't, you know, there's literal things that you can do. Um, And that's about sort of taking steps forward, recognising things. But yeah, guilt, guilt ultimately is actually one of those emotions that, for me, I call it a stopping emotion. You know, there are certain emotions which you feel which stop you in your tracks. Yeah, it, it's it's the acetylcholinase of, of the emotional neural tract. Exactly. So, face, um, so anyway, just bringing this back onto narrative before we get too impassioned about what people should be doing. And I'm, I am very guilty of that. I feel very strongly that we should be doing, not just saying. But um, in narrative terms, this in this version, the shouldering responsibility version, the main character discovers that an ancestor has committed a crime and that the consequences are ongoing. So the main character decides to do something to redress the balance. Um, yeah. One that I love is, uh, 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 this is a childhood favourite book, The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Gouge. Um, and it sees the young heroine, 13-year-old Maria Merriweather, discovers that the conflict between her family and the men from the Dark Woods um, and the problem they have with the villages and things has been going on for several hundred years. It was caused by a feud between her ancestor, Sir Rolf Merriweather, who tried to steal all the land. And he did actually end up with all the land, but n- and no one has ever really been able to get the men from Darkwoods out of the, the house in the Darkwoods where they live. Uh, sorry about the childish language, but it is a children's book. No, that's fine. Um, and he, he basically wronged Monsieur Coq de Noir and 
now the the entire village of Moonacre sort of suffers from these men coming down and stealing their cattle and stealing their hens and um, breaking up their ships and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so she sets about trying to address the balance. She she instead of saying, "Oh well, it's my ancestry. I can't possibly do anything about that." You know, all my ancestors are great. With having that knee-jerk defensive reaction, she goes, "Oh my god, my ancestor was basically a common thief. We need to start giving some shit back." Yeah, without using the word shit, clearly. <laughs> um, and it's a really fun, um, sweet adventure story with um, some mystical creatures. And yes, it does have a, few, a little bit in terms of religious overtones, but religious overtones in the terms of we all live in the world. We should appreciate it and each other and whatever else you do as long as you're a good person then that doesn't matter so you know it's it's very stomachable in that respect yeah absolutely um i mean one an example of this that i've written is the hamartia cycle in the hamartia cycle one of the the big sort of big central theme of the overall story is actually about um cycles of behavior cycles of revenge which is ultimately what's happening you know it starts off that you have the knights of the delphi um the knights of the delphi have (laughs) the delphi keep being murdered not good um (laughs) the delphi helped found a city they were supposed to rule then they were told they couldn't rule so then they they made sort of rules that sort of pushed against other people um they kept in, they they started they enslaved a few people not great good good job delphi they literally had changeling slaves um one of those changeling slaves then turned around and literally pushed back murdered a whole bunch of them um then the delphi were in a bad position um and, and you know Kings started, princes started to be murdered and stuff like that. And what's happened is that there's wrongdoing on both sides. And you go back to when everyone was behaving badly, and some people were behaving worse in some ways, and other people were behaving worse in other ways. Um, No one was blameless, but certainly the point of trying to say, oh, well, this person was more guilty than this person, um, it doesn't matter at this point because they're all dead. They're all dead, and the fact of the matter is is that it doesn't then justify what's happening to people in the present, regardless of which group is is you know occurring. So one of the big things that Rufus is has been struggling to do in book two, and something he'll be going forward with in book three, is that he is struggling with his desire for revenge. Yeah, you know he he wants revenge on the people um, who who for him have basically stolen his home have taken something from him you know have have murdered members of his family um he he wants revenge and that's what motivates him but this is then starting to take him to a very dark place where he suddenly is put in a position where he has a power at his fingertips which could allow him to destroy literally everything and suddenly he's being put in that position of going, if I continue down this revenge route, um, at what point, you know, who, who, who then gets caught up in this? Do, you know, does it really matter? If, if, if Hamartia wronged me, do I kill all of Hamartia? Do I kill them all? And he has to make the very, very difficult decision to put aside his own personal feelings. And, you know, at the end of book two, he says, I'm going to forgive Zachary. 
Now, this is monumental because that that's an internalized for him. Zachary is the one whom he blames for the death of Jonathan. Um, so to forgive him is monumentous. It's it's a very big thing, and it's something that he kind of has to keep doing over and over again in his mind. And he's doing it for the sake of basically saying, let's stop this line of revenge, because the reason Zachary killed Jonathan was because my father killed Sverin. Yeah, definitely. Some... Oh god, I've... <laughs> Okay, I'm going to say this, even though it's going to sound really cheesy now, but it was an unwitting pun. I was going to say sometimes the heroic thing to do is to forgive the dragon rather than slay it, and then remember that Zachary's shape-shifted <laughs> form is a dragon, so it's quite literally... What... That was accidental. But um, yeah, sometimes a true heroic journey is choosing not to act, um, yeah. as in this case. Um, so a twist on this version very quickly. People can go and watch Frozen 2 if they haven't already. <laughs> but Elsa and Anna are innocent, but they discover that the dam built by their ancestors... Grandfather. Grandfather, that's it, is actually destroying the ecosystem for another group of people entirely. And has been... Yeah. So while Arendelle's really prosperous, it's prosperity that has come at the the pain of somebody else. So they mm -hmm. both set out to kind of do something about it. Um, in a small way, there's also North and South, which is a 19th century novel by Elizabeth Gaskell, and I, I love that, but you know it's a favourite of mine. But um, John is, is is it because of Richard Armitage? Well, I kind of like the story anyway, but he definitely is a selling point. <laughs> Daniela Denbiash is also another selling point in the TV adaptation. I've got to say, um, but yeah, John Thornton struggles for years to repay the debts his father, a man who killed himself once he racked up these huge debts, mm -hmm. um, ran up and established himself as a man of business. So, yeah, there is a sort of self-made man arc going on there as well, but he's also mm -hmm. stopping the progression of his family into into poverty. Yeah. Um, and the last point I'd make on this, this section is that this can tie in with the revenge arc. So when you have the main character unwittingly paying to, playing the target of the, of the revenging antagonist, mm. who generally goes way beyond the eye-for-an-eye situation... <laughs> Um, so, for example, Black Panther, you've got Stevens, Killmonger, Ninjakada versus mm -hmm. T'Challa. T'Challa doesn't realise that his father had acted in a certain way. And his father wasn't necessarily wrong to act in that way, but T'Challa then, as king, has to grow into himself and say, well, actually, there are other people out there and maybe it's time Wakanda stopped keeping itself to itself. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's also an interesting thing because it I think it's very, very important when looking at the past to, to keep thing two things in mind. First of all, you've got to accept that all of our ancestors have done something wrong, that we will have ancestors who are who are bastards on every level, even if you, you, you have one who isn't. They will all have done something shitty. Um it's okay to accept that. It's not a judgment then on your own moral character. Okay, it's important to recognise that. It's also important basically to to understand, to, to recognise when people have done something wrong. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, think about it within the context of the time. Like, it, yeah, even within the context of the time, if something, slavery was never good. Even within the context of the time where everyone had a slave, yeah, it doesn't matter, slavery was never good. 
our morals have changed about that but from what we can look now slavery was never good there was still someone suffering um, so it doesn't matter what the context of the time is however on the flip side of that it's also important to recognize that at different times different things were appropriate and i'm not saying oh that means that it was okay to murder this person etc but there will have been different social things as well different social climates different you know situations politics in the world around you and the fact is that when you are looking at one group of people and the way that they behaved you also have to recognize that the way that they behaved was in response to the way that everyone else was behaving again that doesn't mean make it right but you look at i mean and black panther's a really really good example of this in that at the time the decisions that the kings were making to keep wakanda you know on the down low they were making those decisions uh, uh, what they felt was appropriate for the time yeah. it was appropriate for wakanda and certainly you look at wakanda wakanda has benefited because of it because they've been keeping it in but now T'Challa's basically saying that is no longer appropriate no longer appropriate for the time so i think it's very important to recognize that you can understand appropriateness of behavior and decisions and things like that um when looking at the past uh without therefore excusing the bad acts and people who say oh you can't judge things on yes you can you can but you also have to understand context of things like that yeah um, definitely and you also i think it's because people are like well we don't want to think of this person as a bad person it's like um no but <laughs> again understanding the context okay everybody owned a slave it would have been weird if they didn't own a slave that doesn't mean owning a slave at any point was any good um you know it it, it just it's nuance okay it's nuance guys yeah definitely and the, let's be real there's never been a point in history where everybody agreed with slavery it, oh, yeah. it's, it's just just not true okay yeah. um so uh a minor subtype of the sins of the father trope is family feuds. Um, this is probably the one that people sort of get the most and yet don't realise it's a sins of the father trope. <laughs> so basically this is where the inherited conflict is between two distinct tribes or families, two distinct groups. Mm -hmm. um, the source of the original conflict is either misremembered, conflicted as to whose version is correct, if any yeah. of them are correct, or not remembered at all, because it's not important. What's important is we hate them and they hate us. Yeah. So it's basically used often to show the futility of ongoing conflict, because it takes an us versus them mindset, and anyone in the family who does not adopt that mindset suffers retribution from both sides. We are talking, of course, of things like Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Yeah. This is this is often this is often used as a joke, but also in a very serious thing because it's such a a typical um, a typical story. Um, yeah, you'll have you'll have the peacemaker who comes and he's like, "What happened?" And one person will give one version of the story, and one per other person will give a completely different version of the story. <laughs> um, and then basically you're like, "Oh, actually, it was." this instead um and it, it, it's always it's always it's almost always um that it's just a misunderstanding of some kind um but one thing i like is that in some versions you have it's a misunderstanding of some kind therefore it doesn't matter and they and and everyone sort of gets together and, and sort of is harmonious but there's an episode of gravity falls 
<laughs> where they do this. Um, and they try and sort of bring everybody together. They have these two warring people in a mini golf course. They're all little mini golf balls. It's it's a very good episode, but it's very difficult to describe. Um, and what happens is that, you know, Mabel actually tries to sort of get them to sort of to sort of agree to come together. And at the end, they're not going to do it because it doesn't actually matter what their reasons for fighting are. It doesn't actually matter that they're absolutely the exact same people. It doesn't matter that they will join forces to fight against Mabel and Dipper. They hate each other. They've hated each other for so long. It's now part of their identity. And they're not just going to, it's not just going to disappear now that they've sort of had, they, they have a, a kind of a better understanding of one another. It's totally ingrained within their society, yeah. which I thought was actually quite good because it's quite realistic. <laughs> Yeah, another example, which I won't go into too much detail about. Detail? Detail? Detail Deetle. about. Deetles. Deetle, uh, Deetle. Deetle, Deetle. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, it's <laughs> The Oaken Throne by Robin Jarvis, um, where you've got the bats versus the squirrels, and there's a whole religious element as well. And the more I read that, the more I'm like, oh, he was really making a point about certain factions here. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good book. Um, basically... When it's a family feud since the father scenario, it's bigotry playing dress up because holding an individual responsible for the actions of a group or a group responsible for the actions of a few individuals is bigotry. Um, yeah. It's not a reason to harm other people. It's an excuse. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, anyway, we are going to sum up the rest of it fairly, fairly quickly. But basically, it takes us on to collateral and revenge cycles. So... We don't exist as solo units. If I swear revenge against someone for hurting me and follow morally heroic revenge arc by targeting the actual perpetrator, it might not end there. So even if I don't say, say Madeline and I have a massive falling out and I decide I'm going to take Madeline out of the equation, her brother might then start gunning for me, is what I'm getting at. Obviously this is never going to happen. <laughs> Why can you use this example? Threatened. <laughs> I promise you haven't. I'm I'm not a revengey type person, unless you know someone messes with my sisters or something. <laughs> but it, it's that sort of thing. Or you know, if in reverse, Madeline came for me, and uh, my sisters decided to band together against <laughs> against the Vaughan family. <laughs> Basically, the person who harmed me has family and friends who may get harmed in the process of my revenge arc, or maybe they're simply harmed by me taking out the person who harmed me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a, <laughs> the family feud way. Again, I think the, the really interesting thing is that so many of these are all tied in together and you might have several layers of these tropes within any any story that uses the sins of the father. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think the thing is, the people who then have been perfectly innocent but were harmed by someone killing someone else or harming someone else now have perfectly justifiable revenge arcs and origin stories of their own. I think yeah. the thing is, once you complete a revenge arc, you become the villain. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and as as you say, like the moment revenge or any kind of justice is taken, like okay, seen in Kill Bill, right? Yeah, seen in Kill Bill. I I've never actually seen Kill Bill. Or this is just a scene I know of, where you have the two you have the two fighting, 
and Una Thurman. Is it Una Thurman? Yes, it is. Is she kills this other woman, and her daughter and her little baby girl walks in. And she goes, "Yeah, sorry about that, kid, but your mama was a bitch, or something like that." Yeah. Um, that <laughs> you could be like, "Oh yeah, okay, the mother deserved to die. This child did not deserve to lose their mother." Yeah, it, it it's uh, one explanation for why there is the biblical verse saying and you shall kill all of them down to the last man woman and child it's so that no one is left alive to start a revenge cycle yeah because if you do this you will create the enemy that will one day destroy you yeah and that's absolutely. what happens with, with with basically any tyrant anyone who comes in and, and imposes this sort of harm on someone yeah you're, you're creating your own destruction i mean this is basically voldemort 101 isn't it yeah <laughs> Except he did genuinely try to take out the threat. <laughs> probably wrong. Okay, um, so birthright. It's a sort of twist on family cur- the family curse variation of the trope. Yeah. So the main character has an ancestor who is great and did amazing things but failed at a critical moment. The main character then often has a complicated mixture of an inferiority complex because they'll never be as great as their ancestor Mm-hmm. And inherited guilt and anxiety, what if they try to take up the birthright and fail just like their ancestor did? Um, best example, Aragorn in and Isildur, who is Isildur's heir in Lord of the Rings. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and the thing is that this can also be, um, you know, it could be that they, they had a massive failure or it could be that they had a small failure. And that small failure, uh, the, the sort of the the ancestor, it could be that... They made everything good, and then they disappeared, and they weren't able to uphold it. Yeah, um, or that they were then killed by somebody else. Uh, another ex- good example of this is um, actually Avatar: The Last Airbender. You had uh, Ang, who is kind of fulfilling in this role of what the Avatar is supposed to be, and his success. All of his successes have been great. They've they've done amazing things, and everyone's expecting a lot from. Ang, but he's a kid and he's worried and he's already run away once and one of the avatars in the past also ran away and so there's that all of that which is kind of conflated into the fact that he's really struggling with his identity because he he's kind of being expected to be everybody else and instead he has to grow up to be his own kind of avatar which really also comes in later on at the in the last series where in order to defeat the big the big bad um the, the fire lord he um ang consults with all of the sort of the spirits of all the past avatars and every single one of them go kill him kill him you've got to murder him you've got to kill him he's like <laughs> he goes to the whole, all of them he, he speaks to like four of them um and he's like oh well if i speak to the other airbender she'll she'll at least agree with me and she's like nah mate you gotta kill him and he's like i don't want to kill him <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to commit murder um and yeah so he's got you know all these expectations and stuff like that on the past and then he ultimately and he, he kind of feels like, well, I've got to do this because I'm the Avatar. That's my duty, regardless of my own personal beliefs. And in, in the end, he sort of finds a compromise between that, which is very clever. Cool. I still haven't ever seen any of these. <laughs> I cannot... Like, look, you've, you've got to watch Avatar. Got to. You've got to. I, I shall make that a mission. Okay. <laughs> 
final thoughts, what is it about this trope and all its variants that captures readers? Um, I think it's because it poses a couple of really important questions. So, hmm. for example, what do you deserve? Um, hmm. This is a question all of us will ask ourselves subconsciously throughout our entire lives. Yeah. The thing is, you don't deserve anything when you're born because you haven't done anything. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't done anything yet. <laughs> so, so good or bad, whether whether you're someone who's born and you have 13 fairies lining up to bless you or you, you're born and you've inherited a family curse, you, you don't deserve either of those things because you've literally just arrived on the scene. So yeah. a lot of a lot of becoming a fully rounded person in both real life and both in, and in fiction is working out at what point you shoulder responsibility for the things that have come before and at what point you can split this from the wronged party who is gunning for you's uh, assertion that you are in fact responsible by proxy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it poses the question of who is responsible. Yes. Ultimately. Um, and again, I think the other reason I'm... And I'll try not to be like a, a, a scratched record here. Um, not that most of you listeners will even understand what that means. Um, <laughs> Do you? <laughs> 1992 child? <laughs> I do, thank you. Um, uh, but yeah, it's... Um, it, it brings up something which is very much in real life and which is a question that all of us are faced with and all of us need to ask ourselves. Um in order to basically make the world a better place. Um, and also to understand ourselves, to understand our own family dynamics, to understand our our society. It's literally everywhere. It's in our politics. It's, it's just, it's in our social circles. It's everywhere. And so having a good grasp of it um, raises your general awareness and can help you sort of navigate your life. So... I think it's very, very important. I think that that's also why it appeals to people, because I think it appeals to people on, on a certain level in that we've all struggled with that sense of guilt or that sense of I am being wronged for something which is not my fault. Um, and how do I navigate that? So I, I think that's also why it's, it's, it's very, very um, popular. Yeah, definitely. It also just makes for good storytelling, doesn't it? It absolutely <laughs> makes for good storytelling. But you're you're absolutely right. At some point, you will so someone who looks like you will have been fucked up by someone who looks like them, and it doesn't yeah. matter who you are or you know what group you belong to. It, it, yeah. You know, if you it, this is a literal, an eye for an eye will make the entire world blind because someone has always wronged somebody else. So it's yeah. about stopping these cycles and. That, for me, is the most satisfying part of a Sins of a Father type arc, is the fact that usually we're brought into the story at the point where the main character is finding a way of stopping that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um... Spoiler alert. The Good Place. <laughs> the Good Place um, have, have kind of posed this idea, which is that we're all responsible for what we do in our lives and how we affect others. Um, and I think also that it, another reason that this trope is so important is that it actually makes you think about the long-term effects of what you do. Because there are things that you are doing now which are going to actually have echoes throughout the generations 
there are things that my grandparents did which my great grandparents did which are which are still affecting me now i mean jules is um example of of you know the eating everything on your plate sort of thing um they seem small and one of the things that and this is something i i learned through the golden egg academy one of the things we did whenever we were planning characters was to actually go all the way back to their grandparents and to think about why they behaved in certain ways you know did they have religious grandparents which meant the child then struck out you know did did a grandparent do always do a particular thing which meant that this child has always also done the particular thing why did this grandparent do a particular thing etc um there are things that we are doing which are going to have long-term effects this is determinism on its most basic level you know <laughs> you you cannot escape that and whilst you cannot have the full thought of basically being able to plan everything out because you just can't that would drive you crazy um having a kind of an understanding that your actions have wider consequences is good definitely it's the a room with a view thing whereby you cannot avoid casting shadow on somebody else if you want to stand in the sun so what you do is you find a patch where you're going to cast as least shadow as possible on the fewest number of people and then you stand in the sun for all you're worth kind of thing because yes. the only way not to affect anybody for good or ill is just to not exist in the first place. And I don't mean to die, but just literally to never have existed. Never existed. <laughs> which isn't really an option for most of us. So no. it's it's kind of do as little harm as you possibly can. Okay, well, that was a nice light note to end the episode on. <laughs> <laughs> I should, before we go, just very quickly, um, what's your favourite example of, of this trope in fiction? My favourite example? Yeah. Um... I guess I'm more of a I, I like to see a family curse type thing as in I, I will I can't think of a specific one off the top of my head other than Little White Horse which I've already mentioned but mm. whereby it is either the actions of an ancestor that have brought what people perceive to be a curse or a genuine curse on a family mm. bloodline and I like it because it's kind of a mixture of personal significance and great personal insignificance at the same time yeah and I always enjoy those things balancing against each other I have to say I've picked up a few books with this family curse idea behind them recently and the only one that I've really enjoyed has been the one which I'm going to recommend in a minute <laughs> so. okay okay I, I think I'm with you in that I, I do love them all and I've used different ones but that, there is something about family curse where you're like, a, it's, like <laughs> it's the curse and you're like ooh tell me about the curse <laughs> yes. that, that, I, that I do actually quite like as well um, in, in fiction so I'm, I'm with you on that so uh, let us know what do you guys think um, do you have a preference are there any books or, thing, or films that you've watched where you didn't realise it was actually a Sins of the Father story um, are you surprised do you disagree with us let us know we'd love to hear from you remember you can get in touch with us through our Facebook our Twitter or our Tumblr both through our individual pages or through our Dissecting Dragons pages before we go, however, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, you mentioned that you had one for us. <laughs> I do. I've just finished a book which was an advanced review copy of Threadneedle, which is the first book of The Language of Mar Magic by Carrie Thomas. And 
I have to say I've been having a difficult time with young adult fantasy lately because I have found it less satisfying than previous examples. However, Threadneedle kind of goes back to a lot of the themes that I enjoyed in young adult fantasy. And it, you know, in some ways the language, it kind of reads like it's for the younger end of young adult fantasy. So it could even be upper mid-grade. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the stuff it deals with... Um, is, is definitely older young adult fantasy. Um, okay. It was nice to see a young adult fantasy that was clearly written for young adults first and foremost and for <laughs> everyone else to enjoy it afterwards. But the idea is that Anna has always known that she was a witch. Mm -hmm. um, you live in a world very much as it is now, except obviously people don't believe in magic, don't believe in witches. The times when witches were, were rounded up and hanged or tortured, etc., you know, are long gone. Nobody really believes in that anymore. But there are still groves of witches across the United Kingdom. Um, but Anna has been told from very early on that it's her duty to become a binder. So basically someone who has her magic bound once she reaches 16, uh, mm -hmm. 16 or 17. And then, you know, lives a life largely incomplete. So it's kind of a metaphor for, for, almost, for, for, for a kind of mutilation, if you like, a voluntary mutilation. And as it goes on, there's there's bits of sort of the original craft film in there as well. So you have mm -hmm. this group where it's really strong found family girl friendship. And yet at the same time, let's not turn our backs on the fact that, yes, girls form groups of mean girls and are nasty to each other as well mm -hmm. during teenage years. Because being a teenager for a girl is about experimenting with power. And that's what the entire book is about. Um, it's really, really clever. It's very compelling. I, I mean, I, I sort of got two chapters in and I was like, I'm not sure this is going to be for me. And by the end of chapter three, I was kind of like, I was completely hooked. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just, it's a really, really interesting look. And it kind of, it, it you can tell she's actually researched actual witchcraft as well, which is nice. It's nice not to Ooh. see it misrepresented as Satanism, which is such a refreshing change after Sabrina. <laughs> Yes. Yes. So, okay. Yeah, highly recommend that one. It's a really, really good book, and it's just dropped now, I think. Fantastic. That's great. Okay. Um, thank you very much for that one. I'm going to put that on my to be read list because I've immediately, the moment you say, and it's not represented as Satanism, I'm, I'm, my ears prick up like, a, like a, an inquisitive rabbit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and on that note, guys, we'll say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissecting readers or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>